0: I am very grateful to Gary Streeter and to Richard Koken for this invitation and I'm grateful to all of you for turning up to a talk like this when the Brexit vote with its gargantuan implications has doubtless imposed on you countless and additional and complex duties and responsibilities (coughs) uh, in addition to being uh, an extra stress level and um, That doubtless means that um, there are urgent responsibilities also to rebuild friendships and uh, relationships that have been tugged apart just a wee bit. The seismic impact of Brexit from a stranger's perspective, regardless of the stance you took in the vote, not to mention the numerous likely aftershocks in Northern Ireland and Scotland and continental Europe and indeed around the world mean that inevitably we become aware of our fragility and our vulnerability of the uh, challenges of rule this sense of vulnerability takes on an additional and tragic form coupled with personal bereavement for many of you because of the senseless assassination of Joe Cox So my heart and respect go out for you as you face these uh, extraordinarily difficult uh, times. Perhaps these realities and challenges nevertheless make the question that is the title of this talk more urgent or at least more poignant. What can Christianity contribute to politics? Let me hasten to stipulate uh, not what can the church contribute to politics, Ideally, of course, the church should be in the vanguard of explaining and promoting and living out biblically faithful Christianity. But the reality, of course, is that sometimes churches wander in the wilderness as Jesus himself recognized in his own day, reserving some of his most astringent remarks for the religious authorities in the first century. So we focus on what Christianity, biblically-constrained Christianity, can contribute to politics, and I shall organize the rest of what I'm about to say around two headings. First, what Christianity can contribute to politics from the angle of the Bible's storyline. And then second, what Christianity can contribute to politics from the angle of two major truths that shape all of the Bible and we'll tease things out along those two lines. So, what Christianity can contribute to politics from the angle of the Bible's storyline? There are four huge turning points in the Bible that hold the whole of the biblical drama together. And the first is creation. What that means is that Christians inevitably look at life and politics and the world and history as something more than matter and energy and space-time. We are not simply bits of atomic flotsam. The more you take that kind of stance, the harder it is to engender transcendental values of right and wrong, of truth and error. Everything becomes power politics. Everything becomes temporary without transcendental significance. Moreover, it is creation, biblically speaking, that establishes our responsibility toward God. In other words, God is not one of us, perhaps slightly more souped up, but our Maker and finally our Judge. And we owe Him life and breath and everything else. And that begins to shape how we view not only history, but our own lives too. Moreover, that specifies what is good for human flourishing. We are more than economic man. We want relationships, integrity, truth, family. We are not simply people who need a certain standard of income as important as enough to sustain us is. Dignity, respect, passion for justice, all of its stress, all of these things are stressed in scripture first and foremost as the effluent of the entailments surrounding the doctrine of creation. Moreover, anti-racism stems from this. It is astonishing how many books of the Bible insist that we have one common humanity made in the image of God. Paul says as much, for example, in Acts chapter 17 when he's speaking to Athenian polytheists. He wants to insist that we have one common humanity. The fact that Christians have often got this one terribly wrong is to our profound shame. But nevertheless, the Bible itself is spectacularly clear on the subject. Around the throne on the last day will be men and women from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. And we want to start living that out here. Second, sin. Now, that's not a very popular word. I've been speaking to university students about the gospel, about the Bible for about four decades. And four decades ago, if I were talking to an atheist, he or she would be a Christian atheist. That is to say, the God in whom they disbelieved was inevitably the Christian God, which is a way of saying all the categories were on my turf. But today, the level of biblical illiteracy in most countries of the Western world is so spectacular, we we cannot assume very much common theological, biblical, religious language. Even the spiritual words that we share in the nation, spirit, God, faith, truth, whatever, even such basic words as these mean something very different for most people. Uh, as compared with what those same words mean in the Bible itself. So we start a lot farther back. So when I speak to undergraduates today about some of these things and start talking about uh, elements of basic Christian faith, who God is, notions as fundamental but as complex as the Trinity, for example, or what we mean by incarnation, the Son of God actually becoming a human being, they, they look at me and they say, if that's what you believe, well, okay, it's interesting, but bizarre, but if that, that's what you say Christianity is, uh, fine. It's not until I get to the nature of sin that they take umbrage. Because increasingly today, of course, uh, sin is viewed as a social construct. Different notions of sin for different people. In fact, in one of the most influential of recent cultural analyses, Our Secular Age. The author defines this as the age of authenticity, where what makes us authentic is living in line with our own independent choices. So regardless of what you choose, regardless of what you choose, even to things that most of us would regard as spectacularly questionable at best, pedophilia, for example. Provided you live authentically, then there's something deeply admirable about your life. But over against all such notions, the Bible insists that sin finds its deepest ugliness, its worst heinousness, in its defiance of God Himself. And that does change a lot of things. That's not denying that there are social elements to sin, but but it adds another dimension. Some of you may recall the account of David in the Old Testament, King David, who is repeatedly described as a man after God's own heart. He nevertheless manages to commit murder after he's committed adultery. One wonders what he would have done if he hadn't been a man after God's own heart. Eventually, he is caught out and deeply broken and contrite He eventually writes Psalm 51, which you can read in in our Bibles. And he addresses God, and amongst the things he says is, against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. And there's part of you that wants to say, you've got to be kidding. He sinned against Bathsheba, he seduced her. He sinned against her husband, he managed to get him bumped off. He sinned against the military high command, he corrupted them. He sinned against his family, he betrayed them. As the chief magistrate, he sinned against the nation, he was unjust. It's hard to think of anybody that he didn't sin against. But he has the cheek to say against you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Yet there's a profound insight to it too. David is not denying that he's done all this damage, all this ugliness. But he's insisting that what makes sin, sin, what gives it its ugliest weight, what makes it so profoundly reprehensible is prefi- precisely that it is against God. And that affects a lot of things. I, uh, it, it affects how we think of death itself. Um, when I was... Uh, in first year at Emma, Emmanuel College, Cambridge, doing research. For some strange reason I was asked to speak at Emma's Chapel. I was a first-year research student. A bit scary. The Dean of the College Chapel was Don Cupid, whom you've probably heard in some instances on the BBC. His most famous book is The Sea of Faith. He himself would acknowledge that he is as close to being an atheist and still have orders. Um, But um, he was a very fair man to me, an interesting man, and how I got involved in this um, address uh, is a long and complicated story. Don Cupid had had chosen for his series of addresses, this series of addresses, the Bonhoeffer phrase, a celebration of death you think that I've got a tough topic. And so it was death and something every night of the week. And um, the last one on Sunday night with all the dawns there uh, was death and judgment. Well, what was a first year PhD student supposed to do? There's only one obvious biblical passage. It is appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. So also Christ. And so I did my best which wasn't very good. What scared me was the fact that afterwards, we were all supposed to gather around in a large room and drink sherry, and, and, and I was supposed to answer questions. And uh, looking around the room, there were some people who were lancing such darts that if they could kill, I was sliced and diced already. And others were grinning from ear to ear, wanting to see a bit of a spark. And I, the, 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 the chaplain, was, who was a man called Raymond Hockley, he wrung his hands and he said, I do believe there may be questions arising. (laughs) And then there was a long silence, which probably lasted 30 seconds, but felt like about five minutes. And then a mathematics don way up in the corner, whom I hadn't even met yet, said, I do believe that if we heard more things like this, England would not be in her mess. Now it wasn't a very good address, I assure you. And the first question could have been way out of left field, and then all of the attacks would have been in. But he set a tone, he set a stage. Because you see, we had been talking about death and judgment before the God who made us and before whom we've sinned. It sets a frame of reference that challenges all our easy approaches to life and living. Third, the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The Bible pictures God over against us in two ways. The Bible pictures God over against us, first of all, in judgment, even in wrath because of our rebellion, and in love despite the wrath. It's not that he is somehow schizophrenic. That's the totality of who God is. He is so just and holy that he is going to react negatively against sin and rebellion. So the Bible does keep insisting that He could have, with perfect justice, wiped us out. But His love is such that instead, He sends His Son to become a human being and bear our guilt in His own body on the cross. That is so simple and so profound. You can tease it out for hour after hour of reflection and only begin to scratch the surface. But that lies at the heart of the Christian faith. The question is how we, who are rebels by nature and choice, are going to be reconciled to the God to whom we must give an account. And the answer to that is the cross of Christ Jesus. So the gospel of Christ Jesus brings us to freedom from guilt, and thus reconciliation to God, but with it also forgiveness. And with forgiveness comes an obligation to forgive one another too, which transforms all of our social relationships. Not only so, but this same gospel insists that he doesn't just remove our guilt and leave us there unchanged but He gives us power, He gives us His Spirit to work within us and gradually transform us. So you know as well as I do that the Bible can speak of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. Self control. Don't these values mean everything to you? It is so easy to suppress them and domesticate them and sideline them. But in our better moments, don't we want that kind of integrity? That comes out of the cross and resurrection of Christ. In the second century, toward the end, when the church was going through one of those bouts of Roman imperial persecution that were on and off until the beginning of the fourth century, there was a theologian by the name of Tertullian who wrote to the emperor and said, are you not getting reports on what the Christian church is doing? In this period of famine, we are feeding not only our own people, but half the empire as well. Christians gradually gained credibility precisely because of their care for others. Those who bear the name of Christ must be similarly stamped and marked today. The fact of the matter is that the vast majority of sub-Saharan African hospitals were built and many of them are still staffed by Christians. We want to create a generation again that is concerned not only for personal integrity, but for compassion. Fourth, consummation. That is, the Bible does insist that this world eventually comes to an end, And the ultimate goal is what the Bible dares to call a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And that means that we are to live now in the light of eternity. This can, of course, devolve into a very selfish pie in the sky. Once you die, by and by kind of philosophy. But my observation across the decades has been that those who are most aware of life in eternity, are best equipped for living sacrificially and helpfully now. Those who think that they have their threescore years and ten and then drop dead and that's all they have are far more likely to live selfishly than those who are weighing everything with eternity's values in view. Shall we simply adopt slogans like he who dies with the most toys wins? You know, he who dies with the most toys dies. That's the truth. That means that for the Christian, we offer our work up to God, whether we're lorry drivers or builders of microchips or screenwriters or MPs. It's not simply being done because our constituencies have charged us, but because we offer the work up to God to please him. That changes our motivations. It tweaks them. It means that even when our constituencies don't see us, God does. Oh, we may answer to our constituencies of the next election. We will all answer to God beyond that, too. That changes things, too, but also gives the work not an element of fright. That's not quite the point, but an element of spectacular transcendence. This is done for God. It's to please him. This means that ultimately it is God's approval we want most fundamentally, which tends to stiffen our integrity. In other words, what the Bible has to say about the consummation not only prepares us for life after death, but for life at the present time. Then very quickly, what Christianity can contribute to politics from the angle of two great structures of thought. Number one, Jesus said something that is blisteringly important for any serious thought about religion and politics. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, the Old Testament background, of course, meant that the locus of God's people were a nation So you couldn't separate the locus of God's people—the church, to use our terms—from nationhood and sovereignty and responsibility to the state and so forth. But with the dawning of the church comes a worldwide movement that is not to be identified with the state, and the state is not to be identified with it. That has not always been observed carefully, but nevertheless, In some way or other, that is an amazingly important insight because it means that there are domains of responsibility which clearly overlap in the New Testament, but that are differentiable. That's why Christians are exhorted both by the Apostle Paul and by the Apostle Peter to be respectful and obedient to the laws of the land, except in those places where they defy what God himself specifically says. And then Christians are to bear the brunt, without complaint, saying simply, it is better to obey God than human beings. But apart from that, Christians are to be model citizens, precisely because they recognize that under God's sovereignty, the powers that be are ordained of God. Now, I don't want to become a book peddler, but if it's helpful at all, uh, I tried to write something along these lines in a book called Christ and Culture Revisited. And if that's of any help to you, uh, by all means, it's easy to obtain. Finally, God in the Bible is everywhere portrayed as both sovereign and good. I know that's very hard, but everywhere he's portrayed as both sovereign and good. Some think of God as good, almost grandfatherish, but not really sovereign. If something ugly happens, then God was taking a walk that day or having a little snooze. One slipped by him, but the Bible doesn't sanction that at all. On the other hand, others think of God as sovereign, but not necessarily particularly honorable, let alone good, so that he becomes amoral. He's a bit like the Force in Star Wars. Whether it turns out for good or evil really depends on you, but it's got nothing nothing to do with God or the... It's just power. That's all it is. It's raw power. But the Bible everywhere insists that God is both sovereign and good. Now, intellectually, that leads to all kinds of important challenges. If this were another address, I'd be happy to start talking about them, about uh, how God stands behind good and evil asymmetrically, for example. He stands behind good in such a way that the good is traceable to Him. He stands behind evil in such a way that that the evil is traceable to secondary causalities, things like that. It's it's worth teasing those things out. But let me end by giving you a couple of biblical examples and showing you why it's important for us right now. At the end of the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in chapter 50, there is the account of the death of an old man, Jacob. His death causes the worry of 10 of his sons. 10 sons who had earlier sold another son, Joseph, into slavery and captivity. Joseph was abused, sent off to another country, languished in prison and so on, but eventually became prime minister of Egypt. And now with the old man dead, the 10 brothers are afraid that Joseph, with all of his power and status in the land, he, 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 he he will take vengeance upon them. And as Joseph looks back on the event of his capture and slavery and so on, He turns to his brothers and he says, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. He does not say, God's plan was to send me down in a chauffeur-driven air-conditioned limousine, but unfortunately, you guys mucked it up, and as a result, I ended up down there as a slave. Nor does he say, God was taking a walk that day, and and uh, you you, you caught me, I ended up as a slave. But fortunately, he's a better chess player than you are, and with a few more moves, lo and behold, I became Prime Minister of Egypt after all. He doesn't say that, but rather in one and the same event, you intended it for evil and God intended it for good. The most powerful place in all of the Bible where that insistence on God's goodness and His sovereignty come together is in the New Testament about Jesus on the cross. So when the church is beginning to face persecution and difficulty, in Acts chapter 4, for example, they gather together to pray and they say, Sovereign Lord, indeed, Pontius Pilate and Herod Agrippa, the local local religious leaders, they conspire together against your holy servant Jesus. So they see the human responsibility, the, the ugliness of the human corruption. And then the very next verse says, they did what your hand had determined beforehand would be done. Isn't that remarkable? Why did Jesus die on the cross? Was it simply the result of a two-bit conspiracy in a rather minor country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean in the first century? That's it? In which case, there's there's no real significance to it. It's just local power politics. There's nothing important there. It's just a bit sad, but... Lots of other people got crucified too, but if you insist that God was still working behind the scenes to bring about his good pleasure so that those men were responsible for their corruption, for the kangaroo court, for the perversion of justice, they were responsible, yet God was still so operating behind the scene that that sacrifice, far from being a little accident in history, was part of the divine plan to pay for human sin, and to reconcile men and women to himself. Now, the immediate bearing on us is not only personal, inviting us to faith and trust in this sovereign, good God, but it's personal also in where and how we work. There are times in politics, not least now, when it's very easy to forget that God is still God, God is still sovereign, He will work out His purposes for good, Even in the midst of confusion, disagreement, malice, even evil, God is still God and at the end of the day will be seen to be God. This past week I heard of another letter by John Newton. You will know the name. John Newton, the slave trader who was eventually converted and became pastor of a little church in Alney in Bedfordshire and penned Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He eventually, as pastor, answered many, many, many letters. One of them came from someone who was going through really difficult times, amazing challenges, personal suffering, loss, grief. John Newton didn't have a lot of time. He wrote back this letter. Dear Sir, how unspeakably wonderful that all our concerns are in hands that were wounded for us. John Newton. Let me close in prayer, if I may. I'd like to pray for you. Indeed, Lord God, how unspeakably wonderful that we may trust you yet. And the greatest evidence of your care for us is precisely in the death and resurrection of your son give to the men and women in this room on whom there are many, many complex and challenging tasks, wisdom, integrity, righteousness, and a willingness to live in the light of eternity as they see more clearly what you have disclosed of yourself in the person of your dear Son. In whose name we pray, amen.